I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Investigative journalist Stephen Gray takes us inside espionage from the Cold War to global terror in the new Spymasters. And then Dan Richards builds an airship for art's sake in the Beechwood Airship interviews. Stephen Gray is a journalist based in London who writes mainly about national security issues. He is best known for breaking the international exclusive story of the CIA's secret rendition programme. A former editor on the Sunday Times Investigations Unit, the Insight Team, he continues to contribute to that newspaper, as well as the New York Times, Guardian, Times, Independent, New Statesman and Newsweek. He has reported for Channel 4's Dispatches, BBC Newsnight, BBC Radio 4 and the World Service. His book on the CIA rendition programme, Ghost Plane, was published in 2006, and he's been nominated for and won several major press awards. Stephen's latest book is the new Spy Masters Inside Espionage from the Cold War to Global Terror, which we're going to be talking about today. So, Stephen, thank you for talking to me today about the book. No, thank you for having me here. Why is now a good time to write a history of espionage? Well, I'm writing about what's happened to espionage, really. And I think that there was such a rush after the end of the Cold War to say that spies were essentially defunct. And then you had the events of 9-11, the attacks of September 11th, when suddenly there's a feeling that, you know, we needed spies after all, uh, and there was a sort of rush to bring them back in. And I think it's a good time now to take stock of it all, really, uh, to see what, what's become of that old profession, how relevant it is. And I um, was just intrigued, really, because I've been following the story of spies since the end of the Cold War. I met them as they sort of came out they were desperate to find a new role and to, to find continue with their very large budgets. And so they cast around in various ways for a new role. They, they tried to think of investigating, the, spying on criminal groups, that was one idea, uh, and then against uh, terrorists. And they also cast around for public support, and that's why they came out and essentially became legalised, mm-hmm. uh, authorised by a law, and also met people like me to sort of explain what they did. And then since then, I've tracked them in the war zones. I've, you know, reported on the war in Iraq, then Afghanistan. I met some of these characters uh, all over the place, and I followed all the events of, of 9-11. Within all that, you know, I detected a real sense of doubt about whether it was really the same profession that it was, mm-hmm. and whether it was, um, it was relevant or could, could be made to work. And I, I thought that I would try to follow all aspects of the war that I've been covering. So in a way, produced 
what I regard as a kind of trilogy. In the first book I wrote with Ghost Plane was about the essentially paramilitary tactics of these secret services. They call themselves intelligence services, but within that, the best term really is a secret service because yeah. it encompasses all they do. They are the hidden arm of government. And that doesn't just mean spying, it means taking direct action, sort of trying to influence events mm-hmm. covertly. And I put the, the rendition programme, which was grabbing prisoners and interrogating them in secret prisons or sending them over to um, allies which might interrogate them more effectively, places like Egypt, um, Morocco, Syria. These were examples of the sort of covert action paramilitary aspect. And then I wrote about the, the war in Afghanistan. I wrote a book about that and I saw which I witnessed that firsthand. And this is sort of stepping back to the methods of the secret services which are thousands of years old, which is uh, the, the, the old science of betrayal and human spying. And I was intrigued to, to know what was left of it. Were they completely diverted into uh, the art of interrogation and mm-hmm drone strikes and all those sort of things was anything left for the spy and that's what I tried to investigate but you say it's thousands of years old and we'll, we can probably think of examples of like Elizabethan spies and and things from you know the Victorian times and stuff but this is I mean it's essentially a, a history of spying in the 20th century before we go right back to the beginning let's you've described the idea of spying as a secret service it has various roles under that title and of course, people nowadays would think, you know, not just of James Bond or whatever, but probably, the, you know, the orange jumpsuits of the CIA's rendition programme and stuff. In this book, you, you sort of really split their roles into, into two things. So you've got the signal intelligence, which is the sort of thing that GCHQ does, spying on communications and code breaking and things. And then you've got human intelligence, which is how we would popularly imagine spies to be. That's right. We've got two things going on in the 21st century you've got two uh, seductions if you like that challenge uh, human intelligence the old ways of spying mm-hmm. and I'm really you know the book is really about new spying post Cold War yeah. at the end of the Cold War I put in there the history there because there's so much that's misunderstood about the Cold War so you have to start by setting things up but really we're looking at what's happening now and the two seductions if you like the things that challenge people to, away from uh, old style spying are one the new enemy is it possible to spy against a sort of fly-by-night terrorist group, lethal terrorist group? That's the one thing. Something like Al-Qaeda or now ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, so-called, in Syria. And secondly, technology. Yeah. And it's the white heat of technology. is incredibly seductive. And obviously it's produced incredible ways of spying. Remote viewing, essentially, getting into the enemy's camp mm-hmm. uh, with satellites, bugging, hacking, all those sort of things. Incredibly powerful, incredibly seductive. So that is a sort of second question hanging over. Those technologies have been building for years, but have absolutely accelerated in the last 20-odd uh, years. And I suppose, you know, I wanted to try to address, you know, well, how do those two things fit together? And is it an either-or? Mm-hmm. And I think the interesting sort of conclusion I come to is that, that yes, there is a uh, seduction. Yes, the, the, there is uh, a trade-off, if you like. And I think, you know, I would argue that, that we're far too dependent on technical intelligence, the sort of bugging... But on the other hand, it's not an either-or. In fact, in a very interesting way, human spying, the old way of seduction, if you like, has now become increasingly dependent on technology as well. Mm. So technology is involved throughout. Going back to that, the early 20th century history then, there are spies that again, people might have, have heard of, there are books written about them, like Sidney Riley, who sort of do fit that James Bond 
mould of a agent that works for an intelligence agency and goes out and does stuff. But actually, the reality is that that doesn't happen, does it? Spies are not really like that. Spies are people that are from probably from other countries that are recruited by intelligence agencies. That's right. I mean, the funny thing is, if you ask a, a spy what you and I would call a spy, which would be somebody employed by yeah. a secret service, and you say they're a spy, they get insulted. They think this is the most you know, insulting thing you can say because spies betray. Yeah. And then they're, they're not betraying. They're the, you know, the uber-patriots who uh, keep the Union Jack underpants on. And so Sidney Riley and some of the early people, the, the British sent a bunch of British nationals into Russia at the time of the October Revolution or just after it was an unmitigated disaster. Mm-hmm. Tried to overthrow the Soviets, or in a very sort of cack-handed way, didn't work. But and helped to sort of promote this huge reaction, the terror. But it created this image of the secret servant, action man, uh, which again was revived in the sort of World War Two with the sort of the, it gets mixed up with these sort of special force people yeah. who get parachuted in to do tales of daring do. And somehow people get convinced that that's what spying is. It is not, which is why I had to spend ages, if you like, setting that all up. Because spies do do very dangerous things sometimes, but actually very rarely. And I discovered, you know, people from the Secret Intelligence Service, popularly known as MI6, you know, they do practice, they get taught how to fire pistols at their, in Gosport, the training base, when they first join. You know, they get, learn some of the James Bond stuff, but they rarely get to use it. No one has died since World War Two, in action for MI6. Compare that to the thousands of soldiers that have died and probably hundreds of journalists that have died getting information abroad. You know, you get an idea of the profession. It's extremely dangerous for the agents. Mm-hmm. These are the people, as you say, mostly foreigners who tend to get recruited, and many of them have died, but those aren't the British or American you know, CIA, MI6 people who are controlling them. They tend to have operated from embassies, uh, with diplomatic immunity, far better protected and safer than the people they recruit. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take away any of their art and the, and the sort of cleverness of it all, but it is not a profession defined by risk-taking. In fact, they're very risk-averse people. I'm Christopher Bolin. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleadams.com. You were specifically talking there, I think, about, about MI6, but the CIA has had people killed. And indeed, you sort of start this book with an example of a attempt to recruit an agent over in Afghanistan that, that goes wrong. So perhaps we could, you could tell us that story. That's right. So, of course, there are dangers of operating against a very radical terrorist group. So it does make it far more dangerous now than it ever was, mm-hmm. both for the, particularly for the agents, but also for the officers. And there was this spy they thought they'd had. I mean, my book was about this, you know, was set up when I was told about this, this hunt for what they called the man on the rock, mm-hmm. which would be a spy sitting on the rock in Afghanistan right next to Ben Laden, you know, hearing of his plans. And there was someone very senior in the CIA who said to me, you know, if only we'd had that, we could have stopped 9-11. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to track their attempts to get this guy, but it turned out they never got him. You know, they never found someone that close. They never got Ben Laden that way. And, but the closest they came, they thought was this spy, a Palestinian doctor, Humam al-Balawi, mm-hmm. who they thought they recruited in Jordan, sent off. He sent back very alluring pictures and information about uh, Ayman Zawahiri, the number two of al-Qaeda. He seemed to be alongside him, treating him. But he was a fake. He was a triple agent, effectively. Someone who started off an al-Qaeda blogger, 
turned into a spy for the West and the CIA, and then was he returned back into to someone working for Al-Qaeda, went three ways and arrived with a explosive strapped to him, which he proceeded to blow up, and it was an incredible blunder by the CIA. To, they were all standing there welcoming him. It was, they, it was actually his birthday. They had a, birth, a birthday cake, you know. I've been to so, so many, and I've been to so many bases in Afghanistan and seen so many people, and, and you know, and people trying to protect themselves from these suicide bombs. And the idea of everyone standing there greeting him because they had some mistaken cultural idea that somehow he'd be offended if he was searched was utter codswell. Reflect the fact that you have people there who really had, fun enough, no human intelligence, had no real understanding of the culture they were dealing with, and were absolutely conned in this operation. So incredibly difficult work. But don't take from that that they never succeeded to get anybody close but close to Al-Qaeda. They never found any good agents. You know, we do tell stories of failure in intelligence. That's part of understanding the sort of fragile nature of it. It doesn't mean it never works. No, but it does seem like more often than not there are failures. And often it's based around that very idea that, you know, this guy turns out to be a triple agent. The very, the very nature of being a spy is about betrayal, which means that everybody involved in the game is untrustworthy, which means it makes them very difficult to believe. And often, I mean, you illustrate this brilliantly, I think, through the, uh, the story of, of Kim Philby and the Cambridge spies, who were absolutely dedicated to, to going over and betraying the British to the Soviets. But the Soviets just didn't really believe that it was true. I know, and it's, isn't it? I mean, I, I must admit, I find it quite funny, really, that, that you have all these, you know, tributes to this amazing master spy that, that, that never was a spy as good, and then you find out that actually all this time the, the reports were gathering dust because no one believed them. And it, it continues to this day, and, and it's not an accident, that's the point, as you've sort of identified there. You know, it's the fragile nature of this, the thing that relies on all this betrayal. And the more you have to protect the source to stop to keep them alive, keep them going, the less... You, convincing you sound when you pass on that information oh well I know somebody who's told me this who's heard from somebody else mm-hmm. well hang on a second why should we believe that and it's just and, and the other thing is you know the more important the revelation the more time when you need that spy more than ever uh, the less likely they are to be believed because it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, if you say something completely banal well you know the, the northern line is going to be late today then it's not, it doesn't take much to convince you and you'll say yes fine that's a very good source so perfectly got it completely right if you say that you know the northern line is going to be um, uh, split in two by a big bomb or something you know it must be closed and no one should be allowed on it you can ask more questions and so the biggest intelligence coups you know are the the ones that no one believed and uh, most people you know get the medals in hindsight for things they warned mm-hmm. about which were no one believed and they said oh you, how right you were you know when you warned us of this thing i want to talk about how the agents are recruited by the spies because i mean we might think it's quite obvious, like, a lot of money or something, but often that's not the case, is it? No, and it, it is varied depending on the, the circumstances. People in the game will tell you that people, you know, you can recruit almost anyone, any, everyone has a price you can recruit, people can be offered lots of money, but that doesn't really tell you much about the really important cases mm-hmm. because it's rare that you get really good agents that you recruit for money, unless they've sort of volunteered and come forward and the Soviets had Aldrich Ames... Who, um, who just turned up and asked for... A walk-in. A, walk, a walk-in, yes. Now, in, in the Cold War, most of the people were volunteers. And, and the funny thing is, you know, they have all these manuals about how to recruit people and you must identify the five weaknesses. And um, they call it... So there's all these different techniques to sort of 
to break someone and seduce them or whatever. Anyway, it turns out that in the Cold War, they almost never used these things. Almost everybody of importance was a walk-in volunteer. Mm-hmm. And some of them you know, had to literally throw themselves physically in front of the CIA uh, officers in Moscow to persuade them to actually talk to them and, and pay attention. So the real, there, was, there was some great skill used in running those agents, but it was mainly uh, keeping them alive, communicating all those sort of secret methods of drop boxes and uh, brush mm-hmm. passes and avoiding surveillance. That was incredible stuff. But it wasn't about recruitment. Where recruitment really um, uh, took off was uh, when you really see the techniques of recruitment applied. Northern Ireland was a very uh, powerful you know, mm-hmm. example of where if you had the access to people, that's what you need. To recruit someone, you need access to them. And it didn't, that access didn't exist with the Soviets. They were very careful about letting their people. And how you get cl- access to people, when, once you've got access to the people, as the British had, had very good access to people in Belfast, you know, there were pubs, you could always find a place to meet. Then you could work on them. And once you can work on them, funnily enough, the most, one of the most powerful things, uh, to my surprise, turns out to be friendship, that actually some of the best spies are recruited for pure friendship. Mm-hmm. They get on. And, and, and somehow, you know, betrayal leaves a less bitter taste, a sweeter taste in your mouth when you're betraying someone's secrets to a friend. Yeah. And they sort of put the work, put work to one side, establish common... Um, uh, bonds, and that's how, for example, the steak knife, which is a t- case that I really mm-hmm. found very interesting, and I, and I discovered, having spoken to people quite close to that case, that most of what was written wasn't really accurate, and it was a, one of the most significant, you know, real real recruitments um, the British had in Northern Ireland, uh, probably the highest, best spy they had, and he was recruited in two ways. One, you know, his initial recruitment was was through a desire for revenge, really, you know. First of all, you have to go for people who may seem pretty um, dicey people to, to work for you. I mean, he'd, mm-hmm. they just, he was someone who had killed a British soldier. He'd been the commander of the Belfast Brigade of the IRA, and it was a pretty unpleasant person. Uh, and, you know, he went on to run the sort of torture squad of the of the IRA. So, no doubt, they had a few questions about bringing that kind of person in, into the fold. But he had that grudge because he was demoted from that position. Mm-hmm. And they, they came to him and said, you're better than this, you know, we rate you more than that. And they just teased him on that front. But then they just spent time with him, discovered common interests. He became a friend. And then he, he transitioned through, if you like, revenge, friendship, to another motive, love of the game. He, mm-hmm. he adored spying in the end, and he loved the gadgets they had. He had a, they had a bugging device inside his car radio and all the leadership of the IRA, including you know McGuinness and Jerry Adams, they all took a ride in his car and gabbed away. And these tapes became sort of required listening to VIPs who came to Northern Ireland to sort of get the in- inside voice of um, of the IRA. And there's a there's a story in the book about how how the, his car was scrapped and they realised that they'd, they'd scrapped the. Um the bugging device as well. They had to recover it. That's right. The, 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 the bugging devices were installed by MI5, who for some reason were called the Wasters. I haven't discovered why they were called the Wasters, but that was their nickname from the army. And um, anyway, it was obviously a bit. There was obviously a screw loose because there they couldn't find it. So they had to then. They decided then to blow up the entire car. So they extracted um, just for fun. They extracted a steak knife from West Belfast and took him to some obscure quarry where he personally got to press the button and destroy his own car. He also had a sort of SOS button hidden in his kitchen radio so he could summon help. And the best of all tactic was he had these um, sick pills. Essentially, I mean, the big problem with running terrorists, mm-hmm. spies among terrorists, I should say, is 
how do you prevent yourself unwittingly help the ter- you know, yeah. employing terrorists, giving money, for example, to uh, to people who sort of further their career in, in terrorism. You don't want anyone that was working for you to take part in acts of murder of anyone. And what you do want is them to sort of tip you off of things that are going to happen. So one of their tactics was to create these things they called sick pills, which was to, when you were, you know, called upon to the last resort when you were called upon to join the sort of operation go and kill someone you'd, you'd surreptitiously slip this pill into your mouth and then you'd retch uncontrollably have diarrhea I don't know basically be the least person that you'd, that you'd want to be in this terrorist gang which was quite effective I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Stephen Gray and we're talking about his book, The New Spy Masters, Inside Espionage from the Cold War to Global Terror. And Stephen, before we broke, you were talking about Ireland and how Ireland was one of the places where spying was incredibly effective. But you also raised that idea that, you know, this sort of dodgy grey area, a greyer grey area, that whether or not the spies, you're you're enabling spies to, to, to commit crimes, to commit terrorism or having to turn a blind eye to some of their activities if it means you get better information elsewhere. And there's another story you tell um, in this book about a guy codenamed Thunderbolt. Well, he's an incredible character. He's 83 years old. He's a, essentially a gangster, come terrorist, uh, come spy, who's as angry as ever. I actually just saw him about two days ago again. Uh, he's on, still on the run abroad. And he started life as a, as a sort of local hood who joined a gang of terrorists who are, or freedom fighters if you want to call them, fighting the British in Cyprus. They're mm-hmm. called Ioka. And he goes on missions to kill the British. And anyway, he's recruited to be a military intelligence officer, uh, sorry, by military intelligence to work for the British, brought back to London mm-hmm. to, as a sort of reward to stop, stop himself being shot after the war. And then he starts a life of crime in Britain on, on a grand scale where he's, you know, at war with the craze, sets up casinos. He's always fiddling, betting, faking armed robberies. I mean, he does an awful lot of things. And reinserts himself into organised crime to the point that he is then a um, perfect person to be recruited again mm-hmm. as an agent for British intelligence, this time in the form of Her Majesty's Customs. But there's a bit of uncertainty here because he's no doubt he's a crook, he's a criminal. And can he be trusted? And were they watching him closely enough? Because on the one hand, you have the police who believed that the way that... This is in the 90s when we were, and the 2000s when we were starting to sort of tackle organised crime in a major way, mm-hmm. that large amounts of drugs were being seized, but the rewards that were being paid to seize a sort of fraction of the total amount there were really, was, was being used in the form of protection that these people, essentially the top importers of heroin into Britain, which according to the police included this guy, Andrew Antionades, mm-hmm. codenamed 
Thunderbolt, the top importers were all sources, were all agents for, for customs. But they prevented themselves from being investigated seriously by being under the protection and being looked after by the, their handlers who were the customs authorities. Now, there's no, um, there's no clear lines here, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm certain this guy was delivering good intelligence. I'm equally certain that he remains a, uh, a serious criminal. And it just shows you that you know, there's, a, there's a diminishing returns, if you like, in intelligence. There's this soup, and the more people you recruit, the more difficult it is to work out, you know, to, to actually act decisively. Because if everybody is working for somebody, you can't really stamp it all out, because you're always going to be treading on someone's toes. And that was the, going back to Ireland, that was also the, the, the conclusion of many people involved in military intelligence in, in Northern Ireland, that ultimately, in the end, almost everybody was working for somebody. The question was, though, who was really working for who, and whose interest was it? Mm-hmm. Because quite often, you know, if you can imagine, it was a two-way process. Information was being fed either way. And it was unclear, ultimately, in some cases, who was really benefiting from that relationship. What I want to bring is, as you said, most of the book is that is devoted to talking about you know spying now, post the Cold War. So I want to try and bring us up to date. And indeed, I mean, I want to talk about another massive intelligence failure. Really, this is um, a guy codenamed Curveball, a guy who's intelligent, Iraqi national whose intelligence basically got us into the Iraq War initially. So, so who was he, and what did we find out from him, or what did we supposedly find out? Right, well, he was the, the, the agent who was fingered by Colin Powell, who was then the United States Secretary of State, who sold the case for war against Iraq, Saddam Hussein, at the United Nations in the autumn of or, no, early 2003. Mm-hmm. And he then sets out the case. And one of the most compelling arguments for Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction and their dangers was the germ warfare program that mm-hmm. the Iraqis had. And that took the form of, of mobile weapons labs. And the person he named, he didn't name the source, the person he mentioned, he said there was an agent hiding in Western Europe who was who provided this information about this germ warfare program. Now, that man emerged later, had a code name Curveball, and his real identity was Rafid Alwan. Now, at the time, the man was flipping burgers in Burger King in Germany. He was an interesting character, and uh, not quite as impressive as, as uh, Conan Powell had made out. He was a fabricator. Now, what intrigued me about this was that we know that the information turned out to be bad, and you know, there wasn't a germ programme, and nothing was found, but it was how it all happened. And, you know, I try to sort of... Why I find these tales interesting is that I don't like to... Is that often when you dissect them, the way they're portrayed at the time... You know, is, is frequently wrong, and, and I am much more interested in the, in the human dimension of how it is these lies are created, mm-hmm. rather than the sort of constructing some grand political argument. Because a lot of the debate is centred around the idea that all the intelligence was cooked up by the politicians at the time, whether it was Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of State for Defence, and Cheney in um, in the US, or or Blair, and the Chief of Intelligence here at the time. But, you know, there was no doubt there was some pushing of the envelope there and that maybe these people would have gone to war anyway. But what I wanted to know was how does this intelligence come to be wrong? And I dug into the human story there of this man in Germany and his handler 
what happened. And, and most of these stories of intelligence revolve around two people, the agent and the, the, the professional, if you like, from the intelligence service. And the irony here was that the intelligence service that handled him was German. Germany opposed the war but provided crucial evidence which was used to justify the war. There's already something. But anyway, as I dug further and found out about the um, spy officer, intelligence officer who handled him, I discovered you know, he was not even a trained handler. He was a scientist and he had his own mission to prove that Saddam Hussein had these germ weapons. He, he had a personal conviction about that for a long time. He was a very paranoid individual. What I ultimately concluded was that it was as much a fabrication by this officer as it was by, by Curveball, because he was a patently weak character who, when this is the officer, who must have betrayed very clearly what he was needy of. And need, people who are needy of things yeah. in the intelligence world are very dangerous people because they can be fooled. And I think what happened was, was that Curveball came forward and saw that this sort of neediness in the eyes of this, this one guy and I find it fascinating that, that in a way not only the story of the Iraq war intelligence come down to one major source but also it came down to one major unprofessional spy officer whose assessments because of the need to protect secrecy could skew everything because he just had this incredible problem in intelligence where because of the need to involve as few people as possible in things you know you don't get the full facts coming out in the way we're discussing it now uh, it, it turned out that, that his boss, and I discovered the involvement of British intelligence as well, and they, didn't, they, they actually met, they pretended to be an immigration officer, one of them pretended to be a, an immigration officer and went and uh, met this guy. Because he couldn't really say who he was, he had to pretend to be an immigration officer. He could only ask the questions that immigration officers ask. Mm -hmm. So he failed to interrogate him properly, the source. Likewise, they went to interview, the same British intelligence officer went to interview this guy's boss, Kerbal's former boss, now, one of the Kerbal's claims was that he'd seen this terrible German warfare accident while he was employed in this uh, research centre. Well, his boss could have told them straight away that Kerbal wasn't even employed then. He'd been sacked by the time of the, uh, this accident, the so-called accident was supposed to have happened. So it was all a big fabrication. But because of the crazy world of intelligence, mm -hmm. I mean, necessary as well, it's just the topsy-turvy is the word I really mean. You know, because of the topsy-turvy nature of the business, they couldn't admit to knowing anything about Kerbal because that would have given away their source. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they didn't ask the crucial question. So crucial questions that would have exposed the, the intelligence to be a sham were left unanswered ahead of the war. I'm Caitlin Doty. Check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. I think we should probably talk about a, a success story, as most of the stories we've been talking about have been failures of intelligence. And there's a story in the book that I was unfamiliar with and, until I read it, which is post the Madrid train bombing, there's a, well, potentially another, another bombing, but I'll let you take up the story of what happened there. Yeah, before I take that one, just to respond to your point about, I mean, in a way, the, the failures of the stories that come out, the success sure. tend to be sort of hidden, but the failures also tell you something, because in a way, the whole sort of uh, thrust of what, what I'm trying to get to is that, you know, intelligence, human intelligence, the is, is absolutely vital, but you have to regard it as a fragile thing, sure. an over-reliance on it. So by seeing the weaknesses of these people and these stories, you get to see how you should treat it. You know, and it has to be corroborated by other things. It's absolutely vital, but you've got to, you can't lean on it in the mm -hmm. way it was leaned on in the Iraq war. That doesn't work. 
But yes, there was a, uh, a plot in, in Barcelona whereby a, the, the French had a spy who was a Pakistani. Turned out he was actually a people smuggler. It shows how criminals are often quite useful people to recruit, often, you know, not the most reliable people, but actually those are, they're sort of people who can get quite close to terrorists without necessarily getting too involved in their acts. Mm-hmm. And they proved quite useful in getting close to Islamists. He was sent by the French to Barcelona and there was a plot to bomb the metro in Barcelona which he was supposedly sent as a they wanted him to be one of the suicide bombers he was told about the plot and they had to act and his you know his case they shut it down they stopped him these people were jailed the evidence was fairly fairly thin it tended to rely on his confession mm-hmm. and it shows you that the nature of modern spying how the thing has changed you know and that's I think where we where it's heading to is that Spy, the life of a spy is far more short-lived these days. And you can see, you know, when I tell that story, how the dilemma comes fast and quick, you know. This is not a plan to potentially next spring send tanks through the uh, through pass into mm-hmm. East Germany, into West Germany. This is about something that might happen tomorrow. Yeah. And the potential for getting it wrong... You know, you don't. You can't worry about whether the source is reliable. You can't worry about whether it would be better to sort of keep him running for longer to find out more things because you just want to save lives. And no one wants to be responsible for allowing an attack to take place that they knew about. You know, unless you're a sort of Stalin-type figure that can, you know, say, "I'll oh, lose a few thousand people here." Mm-hmm. That doesn't isn't how it works in in democracy. So, a lot of the best spies, you know, have a very short short life. And this this guy, I see, you know. Not only is he has a short life, he's also declared. They end up he has to give evidence in the case, which is pretty rare. And I don't think the British would have allowed that, but you know it does happen. And what you try to do is have an agent there who tells you what's going on and then allows you to produce other forms of intelligence. Uh, there's another case I talk about, Morton Storm, mm-hmm. who's a Danish biker who converts to Islam, gets in with Islamists, and you know becomes quite credible. And he gets in with all kinds of groups, both in in Denmark in Britain and also in Yemen. And the way they operate with him in Britain is that they he identifies somebody who's about to carry out some plot and then he, he then informs MI5, security service, who are then able to put bugging devices, put other people close to him. And the same thing, this is how uh, intelligence is used against organised crime as well. Mm-hmm. And you start with a source who gets in close, finds out the target who's the dangerous person, and then gradually they separate that agent away so the agent can carry on working. But in cases of mass murder, it's so much harder to run that kind of operation because things have to move very fast. So what's happening to intelligence now is that the contrast, steak knife, a man operating against a terrorist group in a a hierarchy, a very established hierarchy of the IRA, and run for years, and they can gradually steer him to this important position to what I call the butterfly spy, short but beautiful life that's inserted, gets in there, may prevent... Uh, mass murder may be paid a million pounds for it, but his operational life may be over in a matter of months, if not if not days. And that's the, the the modern reality of human intelligence. And the other side that we haven't touched on so much the signal intelligence. I mean, you talk about Edward Snowden in in this book, and and when we've mentioned a couple of times throughout the interview, you know, the use of the use of spying, whichever form of spying against a you know 
regardless of ideological reasons, a nominal, whoever's doing it, a nominal enemy. But what Stolen, of course, has revealed is the extent of spying against us, against ordinary people. So that's, well, for democracies, that's a new direction, right? Yes, I mean, you know, my book is not about Snowden, thank, mm-hmm. thank goodness, because it's a whole big area that, that uh, emerged. What it does address is, is a sort of comparative value mm. of, of that kind of approach. And it, it's certainly the case that you can, if you know what you're looking for, having sort of mass surveillance is effective in, in identifying, you know, peculiar patterns that you can say, well, that's, that's what a spy, that's what a bad guy does. What it's not very good at is, is spotting new, new threats and new ways of, of attack. It's very good for looking backwards. And that's really what the spy services are after. They're mm. after you know, the storage of all this information. So once they find some guy, you know, that you're a bad guy, they can then look quickly and find yeah. all your friends and, and neighbours and all the potential people. But what I've seen in, in um, you know, what I can say is that, you know, from looking at uh, many cases of counter-terrorism cases, there have been so many people identified wrongly through these patterns of, of connection and, te- mm. and, and, you know, use of networks obtained through uh, surveillance. On the other hand... Uh, you know, I should say that these, it's not an either-or nowadays and that actually many human intelligence operations involve a great deal of, of surveillance. Mm-hmm. And, for example, imagine a, more, a modern terrorist group, you know, and they are living in the community. So they have phones of all sorts and they are highly networked individuals. Now, you know, what, what do you, how are you going to find out who is the weakest link? Someone who might be recruited as a, as a spy within that group. Mm-hmm. Well, you might by monitoring all their phones. And whereas previously you'd have to sort of find people close to them and you'd, you'd, it would take months. Nowadays, you know, you can move fast to identifying the guy who's, or the woman who's thinking about um, betrayal or finding the person who someone in the group is, conf- is confiding in. Mm-hmm. Now, they may not say very much over the phone, but you could, the fact that they've got a girlfriend who they're telling stuff to may be obvious from the phone calls they're making. So that kind of surveillance, that's very targeted surveillance there, but it's mm. the use of the same sort of high technology. Whether this, the degree of, of surveillance that, that Snowden's exposed is effective, I think comes more down to the kind of society we want, really, mm. because there's no doubt that it is effective and useful, but it also is something that is, you know, challenges us to have extreme faith in the, in the intelligence services who are making use of the technology, and there are huge numbers of unintended consequences what is the same technology if is employed in the hands of, of foreign enemies or dictatorships, that, that sort of thing. So there are lots of questions raised there, and I don't, you know, uh, thankfully I'm not... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm trying to answer them all in this book because this is about technology. What I do see is when you rely completely on technology and you see things without context, you know, have a bugged conversation, uh, you, have, you spot the fact that one person's talking to another it's amazing how often things have been completely the wrong way around and the innocent people have been killed, the wrong people have been arrested. And I think huge amounts of, of what went wrong in, the, in the, the war on terror and why it's gone on for so long is, can be put down to sort of crass failures on, on, the, on the human front, failure to, to gather the human intelligence required mm-hmm. to understand the enemy that, that really does exist out there. And so, I mean, my final question was going to be, one of the themes of the book really is, you know, is there still a point of spies as we classically imagine them in, in the modern age? But that's it, really, isn't it? You know, answered it. That's the role for human intelligence. Yes, but it has to be a last resort. It has to be entirely focused. And, you know, you started off by mentioning about it being 100 years of, if you like, of, of spying. And in a way, that's the... Spying has lasted thousands of years. But what we've had is an intelligence bureaucracy organizations that are about just over 100 years old and that's what as it seems to have endured and those spying organizations secret services can can gather a life of, of their own that isn't sufficiently focused on what is really mm-hmm. needed and also has a, it's an ethos of itself which may differ from the ethos of the general public so you know getting involved in torture involves values which are not shared by the wider public and, and it, it derails things Likewise, the, need, the constant need to sort of find sources everywhere. So spying, sending spies, recruiting spies against peacetime allies, you know, America versus Germany, it is counterproductive. So you have to, betrayal is a serious thing, and whenever you, these cases are exposed, you know, it leaves a bitter taste. And it's also very hard to really run an operation like this requires in, you know, huge energy and huge talent. So all I'm saying is you absolutely need spies, you absolutely need human intelligence, but you need to, it's a weapon, and it's a weapon primarily of war, and it needs to be very, very tightly focused. I've been talking to Stephen Gray, and we've been talking about his book, The New Spy Masters, Inside Espionage from the Cold War to Global Terror. It's out now from Penguin Viking Books. Stephen, thank you very much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
Dan Richards was born in Wales in 1982 and grew up in Bristol. He has studied at UEA and Norwich Art School. Dan is co-author of Holloway with Robert McFarlane and Stanley Donwood. And his latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is The Beechwood Airship Interviews. So, Dan, welcome to Little Athens. Hello. So this is a book of interviews, as it says in the title. Yes. But the title also mentions the Beechwood Airship. So I think, first of all, we ought to talk about what that is, and then we can talk about how it figures in the rest of the book. Well, the book begins with my enrolling at an art school in Norwich and I was enrolling on a it was a creative writing MA but it was it was what was it called it's called something like writing the visual which was you know you would have thought broad enough to include pretty much everything writing about visual things and so as time went on at the art school I began making noises about doing visual things building visual objects you know or objects as they're otherwise known and um the art school began to get a bit concerned about this because it turned out what they actually wanted me to do was write about other people's visual work. And I began to notice that the art school was moving away from the idea that you could do anything at all within reason. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of an art school, you'd go in and you would be afforded or you would have, as things were moving, bought yourself a couple of years to express yourself. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're not burning the place down, as long as you're not being completely mad and you know threatening people's lives and livelihoods one should be given quite a lot of latitude in that and um, I began to notice that they were moving away from the sorts of craft and materials and ethos that to me was the embodiment of an exciting art school for example they were closing down wood workshops and um, when you close down a wood workshop you have to uh, make redundant wood technicians and people with skills and people with knowledge of materials. And that was happening quite a lot. And there were, you know, they closed down the photography dark rooms and all of the people who knew how to process film. And within that history of photography for however many decades mm-hmm. were being phased out. And they began to bring in rather than craftsmen and artists who had been there, people who could teach a course. And the courses began to get more vocational mm-hmm. because people were being pushed in vocational ways. And the money began to be such that if you spent X thousand pounds on a degree, you better have a job at the end of it because otherwise people will tell you and maybe you feel because you're young that this is a waste of your time. Well, you become a consumer then. Yes. You're, you're paying for your education. That means you better damn well get exactly. what you want rather than... The, the whole relationship has changed and it becomes, I say towards the end of the book, it becomes to uh, get embroiled and immersed in the language of the city <laughs> rather than the language of, of art. And my horror was, and my fear for these young people coming through, because I was doing an MA, I was slightly older, and I'd done a previous degree um, at UEA in Norwich. I began to think, because you're paying so much money, you think you're, you're consumers, you're not, you're not students in that way, and perhaps you're so worried that you begin to demand the course exactly as it is written, mm-hmm. so you will, cons- you will demand to consume only what is on the syllabus, rather than firing off in all different directions and expressing yourself and being open and using this time to discover not only what you can do at art school but what you can do mm-hmm. and who you are because that's in a way and I discussed this later in the book with people like Stuart Lee what perhaps higher education should be you should come out of it changed you should come out of it different you should come out of it if not slightly more finished as a person slightly more tangential mm-hmm. perhaps or enriched in some way, and not necessarily the way that you might have thought you would be when you signed up. So what the airship was, to come back to the question, was 
in my head, the embodiment of everything that the art school was turning away from. It was a large, ambitious piece of work. It involved collaboration. It was off-topic. Yeah, it was nothing tan- to do with creative nothing writing. Nothing to do with creative writing, although I did write about mm-hmm. it. And I was doing a lot of writing as well, and writing is actually this... Um, Roger Deakin writes about this wonderfully. It's a very physical activity. It may seem very sedentary, but actually, you know, and you could say it's physical because you spend all your time going from the kettle to your desk, or you spend all the time leaning out of a window having a cigarette and basically bemoaning the fact that you are completely unable to write. You absolutely pour yourself into your work. And there are a lot of verbs around writing. And I began to think of writing as a physical act. And the airship was slowly coming into my head as I was writing. And it should be said as well, the buildings of the art school were these beautiful, particularly the the student union bar was this beautiful, slightly monastic building, high-ceilinged, there were beams. And I began to think of something to sit within the space and celebrate the fabric of the art school. Because I thought the fabric of the art school was wonderful. The art school in Norwich has these amazing, amazing buildings of the old Technical Institute. They're over 100 years old. And I wanted to celebrate the fabric of the building. I thought that the buildings themselves were benevolent. And they inspired and they encouraged me to make art. And so what I ended up doing was building this large um, zeppelin partly because airships have a story within Norwich, because um, Bolton Paul, um, who uh, had an enormous complex of factories near the railway station mm-hmm. near Carrow Road, where Norwich City play, helped build the R101 mm-hmm. airship, a fairly um, doomed airship, uh, which really closed the book on airship building in the 20th century um, and uh, you know, really um, compounded the image of airships as uh, large, unreliable objects which tend to burst into flames and kill everyone that's got anything to do with them or certainly are unlucky enough to be on board. So I built this enormous six-metre-long airship out of beechwood and I hung it in the Student Union Bar because it was a wonderful building which had inspired the airship, but also it was slightly out of the usual domain of the art school institution. It was where people went to drink, it was where people went to socialise, it was where people went to think, and it was where people went to collaborate and talk about art. And it seemed to be the art school was moving away from all of those things, pretty much. So I built the airship as a sort of white elephant, on purpose, to encourage people, if not to rebel, then certainly think. And so how did you realise this? Because you had to learn craft really to to build this thing I mean it's it's quite a challenge Mm. well I could see it in my head I knew how I wanted it to be. And um, I had several conversations with the um, remaining, you know, the surviving woodwork technicians. And it turned out that what was in their head wasn't what was in my head. So I decided to go out into the world. And this was really a real revelatory point, a sort of proper road to Damascus moment in the book. Because I went to a boatyard of um, Colin Henwood, um, who's actually my godfather, and a chap called Richard Way, um, Dick Way, who based in Henley-on-Thames. And from going to quite a pressurised, quite a closed-down world of the art school as it was then, when you're trying to build tangential, enormous airships, off course, they opened up that world and they said, well, there are 14 ways you could do it, there are 14 woods you could use, there are different joints of wood that can be employed here, there are different glues, there are different timescales that we can do. You can do it very quickly using this method, you could do it taking a long time and redoing a good job with these. It could weigh this much it could weigh that much and they were really enthusiastic because they love using wood it's their lives and I really thought both in the moment of talking to them or the day of talking to them because it went on and on because they were such interesting chaps and also in the days and weeks afterwards what an amazing experience that was to actually talk to craftsmen about their materials in the space where they worked Mm -hmm. and they were so engaging and they had so much knowledge 
And normally they don't sit around talking about the different ways that you could do things, particularly not building, you know, replica Hindenburgs in Norfolk. I began to think, well, what about if I were to talk to more people about their practice, about their work, within the spaces they work in, so they were surrounded by their kit, surrounded by their craft, surrounded by their process. Wouldn't that be interesting? Because one of the things that I'd noticed about some of my creative heroes over the years, but they would just ask so much, well, so many inane questions, which didn't really get at the heart of what they did. Mm -hmm. And they were asked about themselves and then about the work. And I thought, if people are any good at what they do, they will be through their work. They will have put their whole personalities, again, they will have poured themselves into the work to kind of galvanise it with this skill set, with this personality. And so I began to think about post-art school, going out and talking to some of these people. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And so that's what this book is. It's a series of interviews with artists of various types usually in their place where they create their art, talking to them about why they do that art. And it's more than that as well, because along the way, as, as we'll talk about later in the interview, you end up collaborating with some of the artists that you interview, Robert McFarlane, Stanley Donwood, and I guess Richard Lawrence as well. Yes. And more than that, there are links between other people that you interview who are either collaborators or one person will get mentioned early on in the book just tangentially in one of the other interviews and then you interview them later on. So mm. there's, there's almost like a thread through the book. All of these people are somehow linked. Yes. And I was anxious to explore the tangents. I was anxious to see where things led because I thought that was another thing that came out of art school, almost rebelling against the current ethos of the art school, the kind of quite myopic view that you have to go in, you have to get key skills which are, you know, of the moment. Mm -hmm. You learn how to use a Macintosh computer, you learn a bit about graphic design, you come out the other end, you get a piece of paper that says you're a graphic designer and you pushed off into the world, thanks very much, good luck with that. Mm -hmm. And I thought the opposite of this would be to go out and talk to people. I mean, it's not the exact opposite, but the opposite kind of approach is to go out without an end goal in mind to meet people and talk and tangentially move in like a knight's move in chess around a group of people and see where you end up in a wage saying yes as opposed to the art school ethos which seem to be saying no or pay attention or you know knuckle down to what you're being told what about if you were able to explore in a very childlike open way and so the first person I spoke to in the book was Bill Drummond who for all of his um, as he would describe them long shadows of the things that he has done with the KLF and um, you know things around that is it quite a childlike open person an mm-hmm. artist and often his, his art explores ideas of what if and I think that's a way of summing up what this book is the Beachwood Airship interviews is a what if you start off and you say what if mm-hmm. I go to an art school and I do what I want. What if then we take that ethos of sort of responding to things out in the world and we begin to say what if? So I spoke to Bill Drummond about his practice and after that I went home and I thought, what if I carry on this line of endeavour? So the next person I spoke to was Richard Lawrence, who's a letterpress printer. And from going from Bill's very interesting artistic approach to music, and, you know, he's a proper artist in the way that he behaves and the way that he works. You know, he is not, and a lot of the people in in this book, they don't do things in a normal, logical fashion Mm -hmm. to, as Stuart Lee might say, a civilian. They are self-sabotaging. They are 
very self-critical. They seem to make their lives incredibly difficult, and they spend, like Jenny Savile, will spend months mixing paint before she paints, as opposed to, you know, she won't let herself off the hook. She won't just say, oh, I'll just get out of the tubes, or just have a go, I'll just do a thing. No, she, she prepares, and she... So all of that goes on. So Richard Lawrence is a craftsman. He's not an artist. He'll shoot you down if you yeah. use the word artist. and say, no, absolutely not, I'm not. I put ink on paper. I'm very good at that, but I'm not creative, and he views creativity in his sphere as being able to make an image or write something down to be printed. So the raw material he cannot create. However, if he's given raw material, he can print it in the most astounding ways and use these techniques and use his presses in really interesting ways. And then I began to explore, you talk about connections, the sort of symbiotic relationship between Richard Lawrence and Stanley Donwood, who's the artist with Radiohead. And um, they work together in an incredibly interesting and quite sort of heartening and lovely way where Stanley will constantly refer and differ to Richard and Richard will be the kind of, I've said, the sort of the nous and will be the engineering side to Stanley's kind of flair and his dash and, you know, the kind of firing off of ideas. So Stanley will do some lino cutting and then Richard will tell him how this can be printed and he's, you know, done some amazing work. Stanley with Tom York mm-hmm. on Tom York's albums. And, well, I was say that's, and that is then exactly the same way that, that Stanley works with Tom and, and Radiohead. Yes. Again, you've got people, uh, I don't know, sort of Nietzschean dialectic banging into each other the whole time. You know, don't want to go down the atomic approach too much, but, you know, here we are in Little Atoms. And, you know, constantly bashing into each other and sparking off these new ideas and making new things. And then, you know, sometimes the book didn't pursue the obvious knight's move so after Stanley Stanley finishes his chapter discussing how he thinks in a way he's not unhappy about it but he views himself as a jack of all trades Mm -hmm. so the next person I spoke to was Jenny Savile who I consider to be a modern master of one thing painting the human body in oil although she does a lot of other things she does amazing um, draftsmanship uh, drawings very much not only in the vein of Leonardo da Vinci well, I was going to say, I mean, when you brought up Leonardo, I mean, that's an extraordinary chapter. If I possibly my favourite chapter in the book, the, the interview of Jenny Savile. Um, and, you know, she, people were familiar with the, the almost anatomical painting that she does anyway, paintings of people that you can't necessarily tell whether they're alive or dead. But your encounter with her in, in, in her studio, it's filled with all of these pictures of accidents yes. and dead people. The death wall. Yes. yes. Yeah, and, and that was that was extraordinary visceral experience. And of course she's collaborated with the Manics, but mm-hmm. also we talk about a near miss collaboration that she had with JG Ballard, mm-hmm. who wrote the notes to um one of her Well she did collaborate with him repeatedly. Repeatedly, <laughs> but it never came out. He was always he was much <laughs> rather watch murmurations of starlings and you know or he was unwell or he was unwilling or all of these things. So this near missing, which is another kind of thread of the book, this idea of the near thing, the almost thing, the unrealized project, which is a kind of trope in the book as well. So what about the the environments then? Because that's that's sort of the key thread of the book. Meeting them in their place of work, their place where they create their art. Mm. How often did you find that... I'm struck with... Um, this is... I was reminded of myself. Like You talked to Stuart Lee particularly about this. And I, I did this exact thing. Basically created a space at home that I thought I'd bought a desk and I put things around it and this was going to be the space that I would use always to be creative. And then, of course, I never use it. 
No. It's almost like that thing was yes. the piece of art. You've made a curated <laughs> yes, work. Yes. Yes, I think that's I I think that's very interesting that people will create the space they think they need to work mm-hmm. and then find it a space where they are they can do anything but. They've created a procrastinatory sphere to sit in pretty much to make themselves feel terrible about not working. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's interesting that the places where people work. I mean, the Mannix James Dean Bradfield talks about particular spaces where he can sit to work, which he finds almost by accident. Mm-hmm. Stuart Lee and Nicky Wire from the Mannix talk about the fact that they find it easier to work in blank spaces like hotels, where they have no possessions there, they have no, the rooms themselves have no personality. Um, Nicky Wire finds it easy to work on aeroplanes because it is an entirely um, impersonal space, <laughs> and also he feels quite close to death. But that's a, I think that's an entirely different thing. You know, someone like Judy Dench works wherever the theatre is, and she talks about theatres she'd like to work in. But she will. So what will happen is that she will play wherever the space is, because the space for Judy and other people in the book is really just the conduit for the work. Whereas other people will build somewhere, somewhere like Callie, as Bill says, that's his life work. Actually, the space where he works, the space where he lives, is his life's work. And almost the other things that he does are just means to an end to bring, you know, material resource mm-hmm. back to that space. So almost diametrically opposed ethoses, but they're all created people. And this is, you know, their habitats are either self-sabotaging again, or they are absolutely the fulcrum, they are the furnace where the creative act happens. Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dan Richards and we're talking about his book, The Beechwood Airship Interviews. And Dan, well, we'll come back to the actual interviews in a while. But first of all, you know, I'm a person that interviews people. Indeed, we sat here and I'm interviewing you. So I sort of want to pick your brains a little bit about your about your technique and how you approach these interviews. Well, I should have warned you, it's kind of an anti-technique, my uh, interview so technique. Is mine, so oh, is right. mine. Well, <laughs> I don't know. You, you, seem, you seem frightfully professional compared to some of these. I mean, I did an interview with my friend Mark for The Quietus about a week ago and he was asking me about interviews and, you know, he rolled up very late and uh, brought cake to apologise. And I said, this is perfect. This is pretty much what I did, but without the cake, you know. And you've brought a listening device that basically works pretty much. Um, the first time I met Robert McFarlane, I turned up, and I think this may even be in the chapter, incredibly late, with a dictaphone that didn't work. It was very, very poor, really, from a professional standpoint. But luckily we got on. More recently, and not for this book, but a different project, I interviewed Jeff Dyer. And I went to his house... And I had a working dictaphone, and I had a list of questions, a sheaf of material. And for some reason, I, whether I was intimidated or just self-sabotaging, it just was not only a terrible interview, but it's a terrible experience for both of us, I think. In fact, he compared it to um, going to see a whore, and then after about half an hour saying, could we just have a cup of tea and a chat, because I think I've, ter- I've, misjudged, I've misjudged the whole thing. I can't apologise enough. And then he ended up buying me lentils, an award-winning lentil stand near his house. I'm pretty sure just to shut me up. <laughs> And I'm never going to use that interview. And in fact, I'm pretty much going to burn the tapes of that interview. It was awful. But I mean, 
that's at one end of the spectrum. At the other end, I think some of the people in the book I just clicked with straight away, which was lucky. I mean, I clicked with Stanley, who I later uh, I'm still in touch with and I've collaborated with, and in fact, did, he did the artwork for the book. I clicked instantly with Jenny Savile, or so I thought. We got on very well. And then once I'd left her studio, I found it impossible, like a sort of Narnia. Or there's a wonderful short story by G.K. Chesterton, I think. Or it might be H.G. Wells, about a man who has a wonderful experience of an enchanted garden behind a green door. And then for the rest of his life, whenever he sees a green door, feels compelled to push through it and ends up falling on some railway tracks and dying a horrible, very Victorian death because you really shouldn't do that sort of thing. You shouldn't push through unknown doors. But it did feel like that with Jenny Savile, where we had this amazing four or five hours of the most intense, baroque, sort of, um, I don't know, visceral chats and looking at her work. And then once I'd left the studio and I'd gone through the door, I was never able to really regain touch with her Mm -hmm. uh, because she's very busy and she's, you know, overseen and supported by Gagosian, and Gagosian are a fairly... Their um, HR is fairly battleship-esque mm-hmm. in the way that they deal with people. And, you know, you've kind of had your time, and that's it. People like Callie have been incredibly supportive and, and welcoming since I first spoke to them. Vaughan Oliver, I see quite a lot. I turned up and first saw Vaughan when he was really at a... Uh, crossroads mm-hmm. with his own practice he for AD as he had grown up with it and he'd forged it no longer existed he'd tried to make a go of it on his own and that hadn't worked and in fact been a financial disaster and he had he had really drawn back into his house but he didn't have all of his kit with him and he was at a point where he was really wondering what the hell to do you know he had this amazing story he had this amazing set of work behind him but he didn't know where he was going and he didn't know where the next job was coming from and he didn't really know what to do with himself in a way having having spent so long in a certain environment at a record label where you would have projects coming through the door every day every you know every hour sometimes something new would be happening to then go and have to generate that he was finding it very difficult and I came in and we ended up having a chat a long series of chats in fact some of the people in the book I went to see tens of times as opposed to only once um, Steve Gullick was another, uh, very um, similar to Vaughan, where his process, analogue film, mm-hmm. people had begun, as with Vaughan, to take away his materials. People had begun to stop uh, manufacturing the films that were integral to their process. Mm-hmm. So, whereas Vaughan had gone pretty much overnight from having a full stop on the end of a scalpel and you would put it down on your piece of artwork that you had made from hand to going and having to do it all on a Mac because that's all people wanted, and that's all, you know, suddenly um, art departments understood. Mm -hmm. Steve Gullick had similarly overnight found that his resources of film were drying up, and the picture desks only wanted digital photography. And people were now in positions where he had to work with them, but they didn't know what to do with a sheet of negatives. And, you know, I spoke to Jane Bowne, another photographer, who in a way got out or retired at that point. But Steve has bridged that divide of the analogue and the digital. And he's still doing it. He's Mm. still trying to find his path. And Vaughan similarly, although Vaughan found his path through teaching. So in a way, that's going full circle back to the beginning of the book with Mm -hmm. the art school, because Vaughan was teaching at universities and art schools and finding a way through that way. But then his form of teaching is very interesting because it kind of involves a lot of discovery and doing. And he's very encouraging of allowing people to fail Mm -hmm. and allowing people to succeed similarly on their own terms. And I found that that kind of um, nourishment, time again in the book, where people would talk to me 
and we together would talk about their work and it was quite nourishing and people were very enthusiastic to help me and that was very unexpected at the beginning and it's still ongoing in many cases. Robert McFarlane is a friend, you know, even having turned up very late in the snow without a working dictaphone, I've forged some friendships for which I'm hugely grateful and which still nourish me kind of as a writer of other books, but also as a person. You know, several people in the book have become great friends. There's a range of people in the book. Some people, you mentioned somebody like Judy Dench, people that are incredibly famous and successful, the Manic Street Preachers. Some people that are, you know, toiling away at their craft in relative obscurity. Some people that, as you just described, Vaughan Oliver have been successful and, and have become perhaps less successful. In terms of talking to the people you interviewed about why they do what they do, who surprised you the most? Who surprised me most? I don't know, because when I went in, I didn't really have any expectations mm-hmm. along those lines. The big surprise, constantly, was that they said yes. <laughs> you know, I'd send off these handwritten letters into the ether, and then occasionally I'd get a letter back from Judy Dench, or someone like Judy Dench, and say, well, give me a call and let's discuss, and then come, come over and we'll have some lunch. And, you know, Jane Bowne phoned me up herself just before, just after Christmas, I think it must have been 2011, maybe, she phoned me up, and it was, you know, this very brusque, slightly Churchillian lady, um, saying, you know, I've, I'm not good at talking, I don't like interviews, but, well, I think it might be fun, so why don't you come over and we'll have a chat. And I think the people who surprised me, they all surprised me because they are all so hard-working and they were all so generous and they were all so intense in different ways. I mean, Bill Drummond's a very... He's a big, big guy. But the thing that surprised me about him, and this was actually true of many of them, was that he is searching. He doesn't have answers. There's the thing that Bob Dylan said about an artist is someone in a constant state of becoming. They were all in a constant state of becoming. They all had huge doubt. Mm-hmm. Even someone like Jenny Savile, who is a very seems very sure, certainly in her work, and seems redoubtable. I said to Vaughan Oliver about his work that it seemed, you know, uncompromising. And he said, well, but that's a big word that you've used there because actually I'm in collaboration with these people, mm-hmm. you know. I, co- I couldn't present the Pixies with something that they hated and expect them to have that on an album because that's forever. And someone like Jenny Savile, or in fact Jenny Savile herself, said, I try and I will push it and I'll push the paint and I'll do that and then I end up basically trashing the painting and then something else will happen. Mm-hmm. So I don't set out to paint X and X happens. I set out to do a painting and it could take years. And the Mannix were saying, you know, we have written these songs, but actually you're as good a judge as we are sometimes of what is a great song. You know, something like If You Tolerate This was a B-side and Sean had the car running outside because he wanted to go home and came in and put the drum track down in 15 minutes and then, you know, drove off. And then after a while of listening back, they thought, this isn't really a B-side at all, is it? You know, and that became a number one. Mm -hmm. So it's a sense of doubt. It's a sense of almost sort of hand-wringing at times, this huge sense of risk. And Judy Dench talks about this sense of desperation and you pull it out of the bag because... All you have is yourself, and the amazing cold face all of these people were at is that they make art from nothing, that they reach into themselves and they pull out magic, basically. Things that, you know, civilians and the man in the street can only dream of. To write a song like Design for Life, to act 
and be so many people as Judy Dench is and has been on stage to create such amazing images as Vaughan Oliver has done in collaboration with people to take that Beckett portrait as Jane Byrne did and she had five shots and he didn't want to have his photograph taken and he was running out the stage door and he stood there for what 20 seconds and you've managed to capture in five shots one of the greatest portraits of a human being that's ever happened it's chance it's fantastic luck but it's hard work and they all stick at it you know someone like Robert McFarlane his writing seems effortless but it's honed. He has a great work ethic, and all of these people do. The butchers of common sense, the neutrinos, the artists around them, going to Berlin, this risk. You go, maybe you have some funding, maybe you don't. Maybe it costs you money, a lot of money. Maybe you can't actually afford to do it, but you go and you try, and all these people are constantly trying to produce something. And I think that's a great human urge, and it's fascinating to me, and it's hugely inspiring. And once you get through the door of the studio and you're talking to that person, sometimes you pinch yourself and you think, God, this is living, to be around people like this. And if I've done my job, then people who read the book will get this sense of being in the presence of some great people, not just creative Mm -hmm. people. There are some great, great people in this book, and that was the thing that surprised me most, that they said yes and just how great some of them were. Never meet your heroes, they say, but you absolutely always should, because some of them are just unimpeachably fantastic. Yeah, I can absolutely vouch for that. I'm Jeff Dyer, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Just one more thing then. So I was going to finish off talking about where arts education has gone, but we sort of did that. We covered covered that off in... in, I had a bit of a rant in the middle. We did, yeah. yeah. We covered that off towards the beginning. So, um... Let's just talk about what ends up happening to the airship. Well, it started with the art school and Bill Drummond, and it ended with both of those in a way. I went back um, after several years, having pretty much written the book, and I had to discover that everything that the kind of foretold in The White Elephant of the airship had come to pass. I mean, people had put ladders through it. It was looking a bit sort of run down. It was in a space that no longer had a bar. It was in a space that was no longer used. The actual social side of the art school had been run down. It was uncared for. It was unloved. After I left, a new um, vice-chancellor came in who I don't think had any interest in anything that wasn't monetary. Um, And as a result, the student experience tailed off. And I used to work at a bar called The Playhouse over the river from the art school, and that took up a lot of the slack of the social side. And so this, the airship was hanging very sadly, in a way, in an unloved space. And I kind of wanted to rescue it. I wanted to take it away. I felt the art school had become, you know, it, it wasn't worthy of the name. Mm-hmm. And I took away the art. So in a way, I probably did a favour, because they would be confused as to what this thing was, because it was off course and all of that. It was a tangential, unloved airship. And Bill Drummond's work had also gone from the space, and Bill Drummond, of course, is famous for burning a million quid. And I thought, I want to give this airship a decent send-off. I want it to be in keeping. And also, the airship, in its way, had become something else. It had become Mm -hmm. a book. It had set me on a road, and I was now at the end of this particular part of the road and so I cut the airship up I lowered it down I cut it up I took it away into the the fenland around Norwich and I built a little frame for it and I rebuilt it and I repapered it and then I poured a lot of petrol over it and I set it on fire and I made a quite beautiful pyre of it and because it had been made of not much material because it was 
paper covered, but it was made of these laminated beechwood hoops with these longitudinal stringers, and the nose cone um, was the main sort of bit of wood in the whole thing. It actually only weighed a couple of stone. It mm-hmm. wasn't heavy. And one of the reasons that I built it in the way I did was I wanted it to look weightless. I wanted it to hang. I didn't fill it with gas bags as the originals were. It was suspended on two ropes, but I wanted it to look ominous and in a way it had to look weightless for that it had to look effortless Mm -hmm. and then I set it on fire and it was gone within half an hour 45 minutes it was all burnt up and then I went round picking out the 14 screws which were the only metal that were in it because it was held together with glue again using materials in a way that the art school if they'd known about it would probably have never let me hang it there mm-hmm. if they knew it was hung together with glue because the people who were aware that glue and wood are two of the strongest, you know, together, bonded, are two of the strongest. They form something else. Mm-hmm. They form a solid whole. Um, but, you know, the people who knew that in the art school, I think, had been purged by that point. So they would want me to, you know, make sure it was all gaffer taped or something, you know, something they could understand. And so I set it on fire and that was the end of the book. But actually the book itself had tangentially moved on given birth in a way, like the airship gave birth to the book, the book had given birth to another book, Holloway, which is um, the making of which is detailed in Robert McFarlane's chapter. And it, in a way, had led on to me having this kind of vague but burgeoning, hopefully, career as somebody who writes, Mm -hmm. which, you know, even before I started, that's what I wanted to happen. I took a very, very, you know, circuitous route. But it appears to be a thing that may be on the cards, and I'm very grateful for that. Creative writing happens after all. I've been talking to Dan Richards. We've been talking about his book, The Beechwood Airship Interviews. It's out now from the Friday Project and HarperCollins Books. Dan, thank you very much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.